Well, good morning, everyone. I know there's some, some person laughed back there. They've, this is the first time they've seen that video. For the rest of you, you're like, that's two minutes of my life that I will never get back. And most of you are excited about never seeing that video again if you've been here, yeah. Now, the funny thing is, is that kind of a video is helpful because it, we either are so glad that our life isn't like that, or we go, I hope my life is never like that. But it, it does something inside of us. It causes us to think about what our purpose is, or it causes us to think about what we don't want our purpose to be, perhaps. So let me just introduce myself. If you're new to Urban Grace, my name is Trev Rysavi. I am uh, a pastor here at Urban Grace Church, and I have had the wonderful privilege of watching the video, I think it's three times, and preaching on the subject of work, which I think is a very important subject for us to cover uh, as a church family. And I've gotten lots of, uh, I, I guess it's somewhat mixed reviews at times um, from the series, some that are, are kind of wrestling through it and not totally connecting everything, and others that are really enjoying um, working through this whole issue and how faith and work intersects. And, and uh, I, I've, I've found it uh, personally, a very fulfilling series because it has helped me to think uh, much more clearly, I think, about this whole issue of work. Uh, but if, if you're brand new to Urban Grace or if you don't really understand what we do as a church, we like to go through uh, the, the Bible and find out what, what we believe. This, this is what we believe God's Word is, and we believe that God has things to say about every area of life. And as Matt described what the gospel is, um, you notice it was information, that the gospel is news, and that's why you hear, actually, uh, we sing it, hark the herald angels sing. Uh, the gospel is news that must be heralded or spoken out. And so then, once the news is known, then we've got to find out what it applies to and how it applies uh, to our lives and how it applies to how we think. And, and one of the things that we do mostly with our lives is work. Uh, maybe 80, maybe even 90% of our waked, awake life uh, we spend working. And it seems like, especially as the, the younger we are, maybe the, the more, some would say, the less you work, but uh, maybe we work uh, more on the front end of our life than we even do on our back end of our life. But I, I want to say this, a lot of our life is spent thinking about this issue. And so it's very important for us to, to figure out what the Bible says about it and what Jesus thinks of work. And so far we, in the series, we've really talked about what's, what's right about work, uh, kind of given a definition of work, what's right about work, and then we've kind of discussed what's wrong about work. And today I want to talk about uh, kind of a vision of work. And honestly, this has been most difficult for me in terms of what to keep out. If you're brand new to Urban Grace, I typically am fairly long-winded. I've gotten better over the years. Some of you are like, no, you actually haven't. You need to work on that. I know, I understand. I am working on it. But there's so much that we could talk about in terms of a vision of what work could be. I think this is such a glorious uh, opportunity for us to discuss what God thinks of it because we, um, we need to know the story of God and, and very early in the story of God, we, we see that work is good. And so let me describe kind of where work fits into this larger picture. So the story of God begins with God creating everything and everything is good. And when he says everything is good, then uh, he puts people in that category and he says everything is good thus far, but people decide they have their own interpretation of reality. 
and they tell him what they think is best. And in fact, they listen to the, instead of listening to the sermon of God that says everything is good and be fruitful and multiply. And I've given you this great opportunity to take the raw materials of culture and help humanity to thrive, which by the way, is our definition of work thus far. So far, I haven't had any pushback on that, but that's a working definition, I would say. And God gives this great thing to humanity, but humanity says, no, we want it our own way. We think the, sermon, the serpent's sermon is much better than yours. And the serpent says, if we eat of this tree, we can have all the knowledge of good and evil and our life will be better. And, and that God doesn't really love us the way he says he loves us. Um, the serpent is right and, and God is wrong. And God says, actually, you are wrong. And from now on, you will face a battle for, throughout uh, your lifetime, throughout the history of the world, where you will battle having to listen to this sermon repeated over and over again. And the rest of the story of God is actually uh, des- describes how we as people are trying to get back to the garden. We're trying to get back to paradise where everything is good. And when you ask someone and you, or you ask yourself, what would this world look like if it was perfect again? You all have some sort of image and idea of what the world would look like if everything was running perfectly. And usually it includes everyone getting along. Usually it includes my work doesn't tire me out. Usually it includes people don't fight. Usually it includes everyone could use a little more love. But we all have this image of what the world could look like if it was perfect again. And God says, you're never gonna put the the picture together Actually, I'm going to have to put the picture together. And so the whole story of God is how he is going to come himself and make everything right. And so he does. And the story of God says that God himself comes, not just a baby boy born to a virgin, but God himself comes. He incarnates. He becomes flesh. That's why we have the manger up there. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time is God himself plants himself in our world in the perfect sense, and says, I am on a mission to make everything right again. But that's not even the end of the story. That's why there's the rest of the church here, the rest of the things. At Easter, we celebrate the fact that he has lived a life, but then died and paid the price, as Matt said, for our sins. You see, that was the price that God had to pay to make everything right, to turn everything around. But he didn't just pay the price. He rose again from the dead, thereby declaring authority over death. The one thing that all of us will have to face and the one thing we cannot defeat by ourselves. Someone said it this morning, like so-and-so died and, and it, like it was you know, something that had passed in a long time. So I wasn't being insensitive when I said that, but spoiler alert, everyone dies. That's the, that's the penalty that God said would happen when we chose our own way, that everyone will eventually die. And so it's not cryptic to tell you that at some point you will have to face this, that your life will come to an end. But it doesn't have to come completely to an end if you put your trust in Jesus who proclaimed his authority over life by rising from the dead and saying, I have authority over this very thing. But that's not the end of the story either. The end of the story actually is just the beginning. Because the end of the story, the end of Scripture, the end of the story of Jesus Christ is that he will come back and finish what he started in Bethlehem. 
That's the whole story of God. Now, why is that so important to proclaim? First of all, because you and I forget this all the time. But second of all, because everything we need to know flows out of our understanding of that story. You say, well, how does that connect with work? Because if you know the end of the story, you know where work fits into everything. That's why. And so what I want to do is talk about what a vision of work can be. And so there's, there's this sense, though, in that it, it's, a, it's an, uh, an, an already and not yet. Well, I suppose I got to hit my mouth there. So there's a sense in which the story of God is that Jesus has come, but there's, there's a not yet part as well, that he's still to come. So he's been here, but he's going to return. So there's stuff that he's accomplished and stuff that he is going to accomplish. And that's, that's the story of, of God that we know of. And work fits into this because there's parts of our understanding of work, there's parts of the frustration of work that are still with us and parts that have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. So it's not just about being in a cubicle or working our faces off for everything. There's, there's other things that will come that will ultimately be fulfilled. And so this morning I want to talk about three particular things. And as I said, there, I, I could, most of you who know me go, yeah, I know the guy could talk forever, right? But I, I chose three things that I think are particularly helpful to us in a vision of what work could be, could be, could be. There we go. Thank you. Thank you for that. The first one is, is how God takes something really negative and changes it. The second thing is how something that was originally very good is, is still within our DNA. Or the second two things are stuff that's really still in our DNA that God has, has done something with and, and continues to work in. And so the fir- what, first part that we're going to talk about is how fruitless work gives us this opportunity to point to Jesus. So fruitless work gives us this opportunity to point to Jesus. Secondly, creative work gives us an opportunity to reflect Jesus. And thirdly, good work gives us an opportunity to proclaim Jesus. Okay? So first of all, fruitless work gives us an opportunity to to look at Jesus. Creative work gives us an opportunity to reflect Jesus. And good work gives us an opportunity to proclaim Jesus. Jesus. So the first thing, fruitless work points to a need for Jesus. So I'll go back to the story here, if you will. Okay, so in the very beginning, everything is good. Everything is good. This is the verse that I get this from. Genesis chapter 3, verse, verse 5, or sorry, everything is, is good that goes bad. And in Genesis 3.15, I think this is in some ways uh, the, the summary of everything that's gone bad with work. So there is a curse that's given specifically to the serpent and then a curse that's given specifically to the woman and then a curse that's given specifically to the man. But I think in some ways, this summarizes all of the curse, all that we face. And you say, well, the curse, God cursed. He cursed, but he gave grace at the same time. But he said, one of the things that is a direct consequence of you believing that you are in control is you will have to fight the person who will tell you that you're in control all the time, even though you're not. In other words, the first lie that humans ever believed was the fact that they could be in control of their lives. It's a lie we still believe today. The younger you are, I believe the more we believe this. I know because I was, I was young at one time and I believed I'm invincible. I'm in control of my own destiny. And, and now 
It's indoctrinated at a very early age, isn't it? You can do anything you want. My seven-year-old hears that sermon at her school. She refutes it by saying, no, that's not true. If I wanted to be a turtle, I couldn't be a turtle. So that's how she refutes that. But we, we believe this lie that we're in control of everything about our lives. And I believe that's because we've bought ultimately into this lie that the serp- serpent says. It says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman. And a, a perpetual argument, so to speak. This is so important because seven days a week, you and I have this perpetual argument in our head, don't we? Of did God really say, is he really real? Does he really know what he's doing? Does he love me? Maybe someone else loves me. Maybe there's better fulfillment outside of God. Maybe God doesn't really exist. Maybe God just hates me. Maybe God's this cosmic, you know, control freak that just made all this stuff and that basically put us in the world to make us suffer as a penalty for what we've done. And we believe those kind of lies all the time. Do you know why we believe them? Because God says, you're going to have to battle this hostility your whole life. That's in the context of work between your offspring and her offspring. So basically, that's us. Because all the demons and all the supernatural, wrong spiritual things in the world are going to have this cosmic fight between Eve and all of her offspring, all of humanity, for all time. It's going to be a clash. It's not going to be a fair fight. He's only going to be able to get, you know, nip at our heels, so to speak. And one day, this is what some writers would call actually the pre-gospel, the pre-good news. In other words, a little foreshadowing, if you will, kind of movie speak here. The foreshadowing of what ultimately will happen is that, that although there's this battle all along with our lives, ultimately he, and it should be capitalized, he will crush the head of the serpent. He will kill that sermon with his better sermon that he is good. So important for us to know because this explains a lot of stuff for us. This explains why we feel so fruitless in our work. This explains why we are constantly tired even though we love the work that we do. How many of you absolutely love your job? Is there anyone here that loves their job? Anyone never tired out by their job? Okay? No one really raises their hand. When you say, those who say they love their job, do you love every single part of your job? Like there's not a moment where you just are frustrated with your job. No, there's really no one, none of us. Even though we have the perfect job for us, none of us have the perfect job. We have a pretty great job, but never a perfect job. Have you ever wondered why? Have you ever wondered why that you, even though you love your job and you love your work, that it just, at some point, hits a roadblock. It's because of this curse. But I think this is going to be helpful for us. And here's why I think it's going to be helpful. Number one, the reason why fruitless work can point us to the gospel is because fruitless work reminds us that we have limits and we need this more than ever in our culture. Fruitless work reminds us that we have limits. Have you ever met someone who just thinks they're indestructible? Maybe if you looked at the mirror, maybe if there's someone at work, they just think they're invincible. There's nothing that can stop them. They can do anything they put their mind to. I've met people like that who have then run into some sort of barrier and they're crushed by the fact that they're not perfect and awesome. And does that ever crush you where you, you, you find out that you're not quite the person that you had always hoped you would be? 
I think this idea of fruitless work is good for us because it, it, it reminds us that we actually do have limits. That we live in a, a culture that doesn't think much about death, that doesn't speak about death because it is cryptic. I had a friend of mine and he's actually a, a, a different ethnicity than me, um, grew up in a different area of the world than me. And one of the things he said is, this culture doesn't know what to do with death. He said, in, in my country where I grew up, I, we see death. Like we see dead people. Not the, the sixth sense, I see dead people, but we, he sees people die. Physical bodies die. I said, oh, how do you feel about that? He goes, it's good. It reminds us that we're, we're not immortal. He said, this, this culture has a terrible problem with immortality. They think they're immortal. I said, I, I think this is good about the fruitlessness of work, that it reminds us that we are not immortal, that we have a lifespan, that we have an amount of time on this earth where we get to live. And that this isn't, this isn't all that life is about. Well, what else can fruitless work do? I would say, secondly, fruitless work can remind us that we need rest. We need to rest in something else. You know, this is what you see in, in the story of God is that God works for six days and then he rests. Did, did God need a breather? Like, is that why he rests? He was tired out. He was fatigued from work. Actually, that's not what the Bible says. He just ceased from his work so he could enjoy it. I, I love that this fruitless work reminds us that we can't go on forever. I remember very clearly when I did not believe God's word for me, which says work for six days and rest for one. I thought God was silly that really if I wanted to do everything he was calling me to do, that I better work seven days a week. You ever thought that? I, I, I just, this, this is no problem. And I remember sitting in the hospital talking with a doctor who basically said, can you take four or five days off of work? That was his solution. He said, you've completely blown out your adrenal glands, which was kind of crazy from someone who practiced Western medicine. But anyways, he said, you've blown out your adrenal glands and here's what you need. You need rest. Can you believe that God used someone who didn't believe what I believe to explain the very story of God, which says, you are not invincible. You can work as hard as you want and you will kill yourself if you don't rest. God said, you need rest. And I think there's a sense in which, which we hit a wall where we, we need to learn how to rest. But not just rest like take a break, but trust. That word rest is more about ceasing from our work and trusting in God. God designed part of our schedule to actually be given an opportunity one day in seven to reflect on the work that he has given to us and to enjoy the fruits of it. That's a gift from God. I think this futility of work helps point to this rest. Thirdly, I think fruitless work reminds us that we can point people to gospel. Those, those two things remind us that we need help. The gospel story is we're looking for help our whole lives and we can find it in Jesus. And this fruitlessness and this futility and this fatigue and this rest can, can point us back to our great need for a savior. Some of you are looking for a savior in some way, shape or form. Maybe you're trying to find a savior through the work you're doing. That won't end well. 
That won't end well. You need to find the Savior who's above your work and in spite of our work. And we need to see this as an opportunity to reflect on our great need and our lack for someone who can give us a much better hope, someone who can can give us a much better story, someone who can fulfill all of our deepest desires, someone who ultimately is going to make everything right that's wrong. Because some of us, if we don't like our job, it's because there's nothing right about the job that we're doing. The work that we're involved in, nothing goes well. It's boring. It doesn't seem to have an end. It doesn't seem to have a point. It doesn't make sense. I get get no joy out of it. But instead, what I'm encouraging us to do is see this as an opportunity to say, see, doesn't it just prove that the story is real? That we need someone who saves us. We need something beyond just being fulfilled in our work. So that's the negative side, I think, of of how to view rightly. But secondly, and, and I don't always love talking about that. Here's what I really enjoy talking about. This point right here, creative work reflects a creative God. How many of you have believed that within the church and within Christianity is the least creative place on the planet? Anyone? No, no one's bold enough to say that? Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? That, that this is strange for churches to talk about creativity, period. It seems really ungospel or, or not very spiritual to talk about creativity. But I was talking, and it was actually a conversation that I had with someone in a coffee shop at some time, and, and I said, oh, why don't you go to church? He goes, don't take this the wrong way, but the music generally is like 20 years old. It's like, and he said, it's like it's the least creative place there is. Like take away all the creativity from society, take away all the innovation, take away all the, the interesting ways of doing things, and he goes, there, there's the church. And it broke my heart. It was very early in the days of church planting. And as a church planter, I mean, I, I kind of said, like, I don't ever want this to, be, to characterize our church. That we are not trying to be creative or we're not allowing people to have creativity. It's, 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 it's one of the values that I think if you know me as a leader, you know that I've tried to encourage this in you to think differently and creatively. Why do I think that? Because I love creativity? Well, yes, okay, I do. I love it. It's, it's fascinating. It's interesting to me. But here's something that I realized when I studied Genesis is that I am made in the image of God. So are you. This is what it says. Then God said, let us make man. You can read that as let us make us or, or people in our image after our likeness. That's God saying, let us make people like us. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In other words, you're you're made like me. You're made in the image of the creator. Now go create. The Christians above all kinds of people should actually be the most creative people on the planet because we have a great reason for being creative. We have a great reason. Does anyone want to say amen to that? 
We have an awesome reason. Some people are creative because it helps them with their job. Some people are creative because they just don't know what else to be. Some people are creative because they, they, they want to make a name for themselves. But disciples of Jesus Christ can say, I want to be creative because I want to be a little mirror to my God. As, as Matt talked about, being a Christian is not simply a set of beliefs. It's, it's actually having your whole life changed by God, the Creator who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who said, believe in my Son, and I will reform you. I will create in you. Yes, I'm using the word create there. I will create in you a new heart. And I will turn you into a, a mirror of me. And your job is now to reflect the creator God. I think it's a wonderful opportunity for mission. I think it's an incredible opportunity for mission. How easy is it when someone says, wow, that was really creative for you to go, yes, I think so too. Because I was made in the image of the creator. God the Father, who created a plan to send his son to create in me a new heart. How awesome is that? It, it breaks my heart that sometimes we as Christians think, to, or, or people think, to become a Christian is to give up all your creative license. And now you've got to look like everyone else and talk like everyone else and dress like everyone else and go and do what everyone else does and like all the things that Christian people do. Now people are making fun of this, right? I mean, anyone read the book, Stuff Christians Like? It's like we've we got this image that when you become a Christian, you have to do all the Christian sorts of things. That is not in the Word of God. That's not the story of God. He says, now you've got license to do this with purpose. And so this is where I would challenge all of us that we have been made and designed to be reflectors of God, creative reflectors of God. And you're like, you don't know my work, so it's not very creative. I said, I don't think that's true. I think perhaps the way you're thinking about it is not very creative. But this What's God like? Well, he's ordered. The first thing we find out about God is he creates. It's statement number one. In the beginning was God, and he spoke and created things. That's the first thing we find out about God. We don't find out other things about God. We don't even find out about his love first. We find out about his creativity first. That he takes the raw materials of, of the world before him, and he creates something out of it. And then he creates people to create things with it. You say, hey, I work, with, I work with numbers. Well, I talked to a friend of mine who's good with numbers. He would not necessarily say about himself, he's very creative. And so we we're talking about budgets and how budgets work. And I said, well, how can, we, how can we pay for some of these things you think? Do you know what he said? We just have to get creative about it. What's he doing there? He's saying we have to think differently. We get to think unusually about money and numbers, stuff that generally typically doesn't feel very creative. What if you thought of yourself in your work as the primary reflector of God's creativity at your work? Would that change anything you do? Maybe not. Would it change how you think, though, about what you're called to do and what you get to do? 
that you get to create new ways of looking at budgets, that you get to create new ways of, of, of thinking about money, that you get to create new ways and new hopes of, of thinking about food and nutrition, that you get to think about new ways of thinking about um, politics and law and education and writing and, and construction. I guess I'm the only one happy about this. But I think this is a tremendous opportunity for us. A tremendous opportunity for us. You see the creativity of Jesus himself. You know, Jesus could have really come and said, repent and believe in me. And people would go, what do you mean by that? Oh, just repent and believe. Just trust me. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. Just repent and believe. And he could have given us principle after principle after principle. And it could have felt like a boring keynote presentation. Like, I am God. I am in control. I am love. I am justice. He could have done that. Or he could have what? Told stories. What did he decide to do? He decided to tell people about himself through stories, through parables. He decided to be creative when people came up to him and talked. He asked questions and creatively reached into their souls and, and reminded them who they were and why they were seeking what they were seeking and how they were wrong and, and they needed a Savior. But he didn't do it the same way to everyone. And the story of God doesn't come to us in just the form of poetry or just the form of prose. There's all kinds of ways in which God's Word itself comes to us creatively. There's long narrative sections and then there's legal sections for those who love to read fine print and are A-type personalities. And then there's poetry for those who love to not be in the real world. And then there's narrative for people who just love stories. Sorry about the poetry thing. I'm saying there's different ways that God speaks to his people. And that Jesus is creative even in the way he tells us about his creativity. I love that. Do you know the first time that the Spirit of God comes upon someone and fills them with His Spirit and says, my very essence is with you? It's actually not in the temple. The temple has always been known as the place in which God's very presence resides in. That's why when Jesus Christ comes and the story that we talk about at Christmas is the Word became flesh, that's tabernacled. So God's very essence, tabernacled, lived in a, 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 a particular building, but that's not the first time God's Spirit comes in. Let me read this. You all, you all know this stuff. It's in Exodus chapter 31, right? You've been reading Exodus 31 for looking for fillings of God's Spirit. I know that. I can tell. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bazal, I think I say that right, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to, design, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. First time we see someone filled with the Spirit of God in the story of God. First time the Spirit of God comes on someone is when someone opens up a shingle at Market Collective. It's the first time. God's like, my DNA, I want my DNA in the way this is built. I don't want this just built by anyone. I want this built very brilliantly. I want to use gold and special carving and, and you're going to need my image and DNA inside of you. And so I will empower you with my spirit to do that. For those of you who work in the construction business, shouldn't this encourage you? That before 
the Spirit of God is ever given to someone in business, it's given to someone in the trades. And this is remarkable for those who turn wrenches for a living, fix cars, pour cement, build houses, that God's Spirit could actually reside in those kind of people. I think that's remarkable. Remarkable. So I want to ask the question, what if we saw our work? What if we saw the work that we were called to do, the stuff that God gave us to do, the, the thing, the, the primary place and context in which we get to live out our faith as a way to reflect God's creativity? We're creating efficient systems. Some of you, that's the way you're creative. I mean, we need those people, guaranteed. Why do you think we hired an assistant pastor? We need someone to think better about systems than me. Why do we think we need your help? Number one gift I seem to be looking for these days is administration, something that seems the least spiritual. Why? Because I think we need more creativity when it comes to thinking about systems when it comes to churches. Creative ways in which we can do what God has called us to do, fulfill the mission of God. Would it change how you think about your work? Would it change what you do at your work? What if you took seriously the command that Christians should be at the center point of creativity in our culture? Did you know it used to be? Did you know that I never had to preach on this if you go back 100 years, 200 years? Did you know that many of the educational institutes, if not all of the institutions, take two, educational institutes in North America were started by Christian people, the majority, ways of thinking about education. Did you know that politics used to be filled full of people who were Christians? Did you know that the, the, the most creative places, science, was driven in the 1600s by a group of Christians who loved Jesus and wanted people to see that, that God had designed the universe in a particular way. Now people say science and faith don't mix. And I would say, all you have to do is look back 500 years and say science was driven by the Christians in those days. By their creative minds. They weren't afraid to explore how God made things. They weren't, they weren't afraid of these things. What if you weren't afraid? to think differently about your work. I know I could go on and on about that. You know that. And so lastly, I'll finish off with good work, I think, reflects a good God. And I would start this by simply asking a question. Have you ever thought about why you enjoy good things? And the older I get, the more I enjoy a good thing, like a well-built thing. Anyone just really, you love good quality products. Anyone like just good, you hate spending money on junk. Right? You buy the $5 thing because the $10 thing is too expensive, but then the $5 thing falls apart because it's a piece of junk. And you're like, I should have bought the good thing, the well-designed thing, the one that lasts. Some of you, like myself, have learned this lesson over time and you're willing to pay the good money up front. Why do you like good things? I'll tell you why. Because you and I are made in the image of God who loves good things. It's the first thing he says about creation. It's good. He creates everything, saw everything that he had made, including people, and said, it is good. The only time God said it's not, a, not good is when he, he said, you're alone, and that's not good. So what did he do? He created something immediately following that, so it could be good. 
And I wondered for the longest time, now why do I like good stuff? Is it because I'm materialistic? Probably. If I'm honest, that there's a struggle there. But I think it's partially because I think there's something about good quality things that is in my DNA that just feels good to say it's good. Like, I, like, I love this water bottle. I love, we, we designed these things. We wanted to give gifts that we thought were good. Not cheap, but good. Why? Because I think it's an opportunity to talk about a good God. That this is how God wants everything. That this is God, what God has been working throughout history to do. And what, when Jesus returns, he will do. He will make everything good again. The end of the story, which is the beginning, is about how we will stand around the throne. And whether it's metaphorical or literal, it doesn't even matter. We will sing the praises of a good Savior. Not just a sustainable Savior. Not just a Savior who, who got by and was efficient, but a good Savior. One who puts a lot of thought into his products. Us. In fact, I would say he puts so much into his products that his actual DNA is there. And it's good. And there's still enough of that all around us that I say, I think we can capitalize on this and reflect back to God. And I've got two things to finish up as I finish up, I'm a little over time here. But I want to challenge us into this idea of how we work is as important, how we work is as important as what we say at work. You notice when, when, when I uh, sent out an email to kind of some people to get some feedback, there was a lot of people who talked about what they say at work. But there was a few that said, what I, work is so, such a great opportunity for me to pair up what I say and what I do. I thought that was brilliant. Work is a context for me not just to talk about my faith, but to show how my faith works, through how I work. And what I don't want us to walk away from this series is this dichotomy between do I work well or do I say, talk about my faith? I would say, I don't think there is a dichotomy. I think both work together, literally work together that how we work can be a way of proclaiming what we say about work. That how we do this can then give us opportunities. In fact, that's the next point that I would leave us with. In James 2, 18 to 26, here is what it says. And I never put these two together. Hebrews, then James. James is one of the last books in the Bible in chapter two. And this is what it says. This is a, this is a pastor who someone said, yes, it's, it's about faith. It's about trusting. It's about belief. It's about what you believe. And, and the pastor of this particular church said, yes, it is. But he said this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have work. So you, you, you show it by what you say. And, and I, I say, I show it by what I do. And he said, show me your faith apart from works. He said, prove that these can be separated. They can't. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. He said, belief isn't all 
there is to proclaiming Jesus. He said, even demons believe that there's a God, but they're not saved. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? That there is no dichotomy between these two? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. There is no difference between these two, what he's saying. They work together. You are not saved by what we do, by how we work. That doesn't bring you close to God. But when you are saved, you work. And your works back up what you say. And your works are integrated with your faith. But ultimately, and you see it up there, who you work for is more important than what you do. I think one of the great discouragements of our culture is that we're so discouraged that we don't get to do what we're supposed to do. I hear it all the time. It's not really fulfilling. I'm not really super happy. I'm looking for something better. I wish it was different. We live in a culture that has been able to choose our work more than any other society in, in history. And we're more unhappy I would say, than many of the cultures in history. It hasn't gotten us anywhere. Why? Because what we do will never be more important than who we do it for. That's why. That no matter, and this is where the gospel really starts to apply to us. That some of us see this creativity and this goodness and reflecting and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're, you're still of the mindset that as long as you do this, that God will be pleased with you and he's not pleased by your work alone. That no amount of you working hard, no amount of creativity, no amount of you doing your best for God will get you any closer to God than you doing your worst for God. In fact, the Bible would say that your best is not good enough. That no matter how hard you work, no matter how creatively you work, no matter how well you reflect the good God, that no amount of work will ever get you to the place where God looks upon you and said, oh, that person's worthy to be saved. He said, there is one person in this world that's work was perfect and that person is Jesus Christ. And if you trust in Jesus Christ in his work on the cross, I'm not saying that metaphorically, I'm saying it was work. If we trust in his work on the cross, then God will say, that's what I will use to identify where your heart is at. Isn't that amazing? That no matter how hard we work, and, and this should really encourage us, and I'll call the band up as we close this thing out. That in this time and season where your work life is on the edge, you don't know what your work life looks like. Some of you at this point are, have taken cuts in your hours because you're just happy to have a job at this point. And I get that. We're in a culture and a society that is screaming out for identity. It's screaming out for purpose, screaming out for something that's better that will last and that won't go up and down with the economy. And here's what I would say. Guess who we can trust in for that? Jesus Christ. His work doesn't go up and down with the economy. 
His faithfulness to us doesn't matter whether we're working hard or not working hard. His work has been done and finished and accomplished. And simply by trusting in it, friends, we can receive everything that he earned through his work. We can receive his paycheck, so to speak. To put that in, in, in working terms. You're working hard for a paycheck, but here's what Jesus says. If you trust in me, I'll exchange your paycheck for mine. Your paycheck will get you nowhere. Mine will get you everything. And so that's what we do when we celebrate the Lord's table. This is the paycheck. This is what we trust in for our hope as believers in Jesus Christ, as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. The, the bread which symbolizes the flesh of Jesus, that he was here. Did you know he was a carpenter for 30 years before he decided to move into ministry? We forget that. He was flesh. God came to us, lived with us and like us, and better than us, far better than us. But then he also chose to be rejected by God so we wouldn't have to be. So that we could take his paycheck in exchange for ours and he paid the penalty for it. He said, your, your work has gotten you sin and death and I'll take that and I'll give you life. And so friends, I, I, I say this fairly regularly. If you believe that, then this celebration is for you and me. But if you don't believe that, there's nothing magical about partaking of these things that will suddenly turn the switch. Here's what will turn the switch. Jesus Christ himself. His spirit has to come into your heart, turn the switch so that you who used to not believe this now believe this. And you can't always explain it, but you can enjoy it. And so let's celebrate together.